Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 18 of The Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley-Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley Chapter 9 Officials of the City The chief of the officials of the City of London was, for many years after the conquest, the Castellan and Bannerer. When William the Conqueror obtained possession of London, he built a castle on the river at each end of the city to intimidate the Londoners. The tower was at the east end, and at the west end was what, according to Dugdale, was called at first the castle. This was placed under the charge of Baynard, one of the conqueror's followers, after whom it came to be known as Baynard's Castle. The hereditary office of Castellan was held by the family of Fitzwalter, by virtue of their possession of Baynard's Castle, the key of the city. The duties attached to this office are among the most important and interesting in the story of medieval London, and it is to be presumed that Baynard held the various privileges afterwards possessed by the family of Fitzwalter, but no notice of this is recorded. Robert Fitzrichard was the first baron by tenure. He is said to have been the younger son of Richard Fitzgilbert, ancestor of the Earls of Clare. He was steward to Henry I, from whom he obtained the barony of Dunmo, and the honour of the soak of Baynard's castle, both which had been forfeited to the crown in 1111 by reason of the felony of William, Baron of Dunmo, son of Ralph Baynard, the Norman associate of William the Conqueror, after whom the castle was named. In connection with this soak, Robert held the hereditary office of standard-bearer of the city, the duties of which will be stated further on. He died in 1134 and was succeeded by his son, Walter Fitzrobert. The latter's son was Robert Fitzwalter, the most famous member of the family, and the one who transmitted to his descendants the permanent surname of Fitzwalter. This Fitzwalter was styled, quote, Marshal of the Army of God and Holy Church, end quote. He was one of the twenty-five barons appointed to enforce the observance of Magna Carta obtained from King John. An, quote, Agreement, dated 15th to the 25th of June, 1215, between King John of the one part, and Robert Fitzwalter, Marshal of the Army of God and of Holy Church in England, six earls and six barons named, and other earls, barons and freemen of the other part, end quote, is preserved in the public record office, and the following description of the document is given in the catalogue of manuscripts, etc., in the Museum of the Public Record Office, 1902. Quote, the earls, barons, and others shall hold the city of London, saving the royal revenues, and the Archbishop of Canterbury shall hold the Tower of London, saving the liberties of the city, until the Feast of the Assumption in the seventeenth year of the reign. In the meanwhile, oaths shall be taken throughout England to twenty-five barons, 
as is contained in the charter for the liberties and security of the realm, and all things shall be done according to the said charter. Otherwise the city and the tower shall be held as above, until all the said things shall be done. End quote. It is said in a note to this document that, quote, None of the thirteen persons who are thus entered into an agreement with the king are mentioned among those upon whose advice he granted the great charter. End quote. The third baron was himself in trade, and he owned wine ships. He received special privileges from John, and the story of that king's treatment of his daughter Matilda is supposed to be an unfounded tale. In the year 1215, the insurgent barons entered the city at Oldgate, largely owing to the assistance of Robert Fitzwalter, whose position was of a commanding character. He died in 1235. Walter Fitzwalter succeeded his father Robert, and died in 1257. He was succeeded by his son Robert Fitzwalter, the fifth baron. It is of the latter's duties and privileges that we possess an account, written by Robert Glover, Somerset Herald in the reign of Elizabeth, extracts from which are given by Dugdale in his Baronage of England, 1675. Quote, in time of war, he should serve the city in manner following, viz. to ride upon a light horse with twenty men-at-arms on horseback, their horses covered with cloth or harness, unto the great door of St. Paul's Church, with the banner of his arms carried before him. And being come in that manner thither, the mayor of London, together with the sheriffs and aldermen, to issue armed out of the church unto the same door on foot, with a banner in his hand, having the figure of St. Paul depicted with gold thereon, but the feet, hands, and head of silver, holding a silver sword in his hand. And as soon as he shall see the mayor, sheriffs, and aldermen come on foot out of the church, carrying such a banner, he is to alight from his horse and salute him as his companion, saying, Sir Mayor, I am obliged to come hither to do my service which I owe to this city. To whom the mayor, sheriffs, and aldermen are to answer, We give to you, as our banner-bearer for this city, this banner by inheritance of the city, to bear and carry to the honour and profit thereof to your power. Whereupon the said Robert and his heirs shall receive it into their hands, and the mayor and sheriffs shall follow him to the door and bring him an horse worth twenty pounds, which horse shall be saddled with a saddle of his arms, and covered with silk depicted likewise with the same arms. And they shall take twenty pounds sterling, and deliver it to the chamberlain of the said Robert for his expenses that day. End quote. Etc. There was a vacant ground opposite the great west door of St. Paul's where this interesting ceremony took place. The folk moots were held in the churchyard at the east end of the cathedral. In 1275, 3 Edward I, Robert Fitzwalter obtained license from the Crown to convey Baynard Castle and the Tower of Montfichet to the Archbishop of Canterbury for the purpose of the foundation of the house and church of the Friars Preachers, or Blackfriars. In the following year, Edward I confirmed the grant of two lanes adjacent to, quote, Castle Baynard and the Tower of Montfichet for the purposes of enlarging the aforesaid place on condition that the said archbishop should provide the citizens with a more convenient way as he had now done. End quote. In 1277 to 1278, an alteration was made in the wall of the friary. When Sir Robert Fitzwalter conveyed Baynard Castle to the archbishop, 
he specially reserved all his rights and privileges in the following terms. Quote, Provided that by reason of this grant, nothing should be extinguished to him and his heirs which did not belong to his barony, but that whatsoever relating thereto as well in rents, landing of vessels and other liberties and privileges in the city of London or elsewhere without diminution, which to him, the said Robert, or to that barony, had anciently appertained, should be thenceforth reserved. End quote. We know very little of this tower of Montfichet, but it must have been closely connected with Baynard Castle. There is a reference to it and its owner in the Chronique de la Guerre entre les Anglois et les Écossois en 1173 et 1174 par Jordan Fantôme. Howlett's Chronicles of Stephen, Henry II, and Richard I, Rolls series. Quote, Gilbert de Montfichet has fortified his castle and says that the Clares are leagued with him. End quote. As Mr. Round points out to me, this reference to the Clares must relate to the proprietors of Baynard's castle, who, as previously noted, were of the same family as the Clares. Walter Fitzrobert is also referred to in this metrical chronicle. The barons Fitzwalter possessed many privileges in time of peace, which are set out by Dugdale, among which was the right of punishing by drowning at Woodwharf persons guilty of treason, but it was as a constable of Barnard Castle that they enjoyed these privileges as well as the office of bannerer to the city of London. A beautiful seal inscribed Sigillum Roberti Filii Walteri was found at Stamford, Lincolnshire in the reign of Charles II, and is the subject of a paper by John Charles Brooke of the Herald's College in Archaeologia. Quote, in this seal we see Fitzwalter's horse elegantly engraved and covered with trappings of his arms, so exquisitely represented that they evidently appear to be of a much finer texture than those commonly used, the muscles of the animal being seen under them, and as much as engraving can represent drapery appear to be silk, as described by Glover. And what is remarkable, his arms are carved on the rest behind the saddle, which is a rare instance and evidently allude to that which the mayor was to present to him. End quote. On the seal are represented the arms of Fitzwalter's second wife, Eleanor, daughter of Robert de Ferrers, Earl of Ferrers and Derby. She was married in 1298 and died in 1304. Therefore, the date of the seal is fixed within six years. Mr. Brooke refers to another seal of Baron Fitzwalter, which he used, 28 Edward I anno 1300, and in which the dragon occurring in the former seal beneath the horse is used as a supporter. Robert Fitzwalter died in 1325, and in 1328 the wardship of his son John was granted by the mayor and alderman to his widow Joanna. In 1347 Sir John Fitzwalter still claimed to have franchise in the ward of Castle Baynard, but the city entirely repudiated the claim as, quote, altogether repugnant to the liberties of the city. End quote. He caused stocks to be set up in the ward of Castle Baynard and claimed to make deliverance of men there imprisoned. In consequence of this action, a conference was held by the mayor, alderman and commonalty at which, quote, it was agreed that the said Sir John Fitzwalter had no franchise within the liberty of the city aforesaid, nor is he in future to intermeddle with any plea in the Guildhall of London or with any matters touching the liberties of the city. End quote. The recorder, 
the chief official of the city, is appointed for life. He was formally appointed by the city, but since the Local Government Act of 1888, he is nominated by the city and approved by the Lord Chancellor. His duties and his oath are recorded in the Liber Albus. In 1329, Gregory de Norton, the then holder of the office, obtained an increase in salary, 100 shillings yearly, as also his robe of the same pattern as the alderman's robes. The common sergeant was formally appointed by the city, but since 1888 by the Lord Chancellor. He is the recorder's principal assistant. The next great official is the town clerk, who is appointed by the common council and re-elected annually. John de Batakel, clerk of the city, is referred to in letterbook A, and this is the first recorded mention of the office afterwards known as the common clerk, and later as town clerk. Next to the recorder, the town clerk was the chief officer in the local courts of law called the Hustings and the Mayor's Court. Among the distinguished men who have held the office, two names stand out, viz. John Carpenter and William Dunthorne. Carpenter, town clerk in the reigns of Henry V and Henry VI, was elected in 1417. He was called also Secretary of the City, a title not applied to any other town clerk. He is best known as the compiler of the Liber Albus and as founder of the City of London School. Dunthorne's name, 1462, is associated with the Liber Dunthorne, which contains transcripts from the Liber Albus, Liber Customarum, letterbooks, etc. The Chamberlain, or Comptroller of the King's Chamber, is appointed by the livery. He was originally a King's officer, and the office was probably instituted soon after the conquest. It is mentioned in documents of the 12th century. On June 28, 1232, the office of, quote, King's Chamberlain of London, end quote, was granted for life to Peter de Rivalis. His duties and privileges, as stated in the grant, are very extensive and important. Quote, he shall have for life the custody of the king's houses at Southampton and the king's prize of wine there. Custody of the king's jury of the Mint of England, end quote, and, quote, all other things pertaining to the office of Chamberlain of London, end quote. By another grant of the same year, the said Peter, treasurer of Poitiers for life, was given the custody of the ports and coasts of England, saving the port of Dover. When the office is mentioned in 1275, it was combined with the offices of mayor and coroner. The functions of coroner were often exercised by the chamberlain and sheriffs, and when the chamberlain was called away from the city by the king, he appointed a deputy coroner. The office was sometimes held by the king's butler, to whom appertained the office of coroner. William Trent, a wine merchant of Bergerac, was appointed king's butler on the 25th of November 1301, 30 Edward I. He became also the king's chamberlain of the city and coroner of London. Andrew Horne, a fishmonger by trade who kept a shop in Bridge Street, held the office of Chamberlain for several years. He was the compiler of Liber Horne, which contains charters, statutes, grants, etc. To him also has been attributed the authorship of the law treaties of medieval titles entitled The Mirror of Justice. He died in 1328. Many attempts were made by the citizens to get coronership into their own hands, and at last Edward IV sold the right to appoint a coroner of their own 
independent of the king's butler, for £7,000. The remembrancer, or state amanuensis, is appointed by the Common Council. The office was held from 1571 to 1584 by a distinguished man, Thomas Norton, M.P., who was joint author with Thomas Sackville, Earl of Dorset, of the tragedy of Gorboduc. He left a manuscript on the ancient duties of the Lord Mayor and Corporation, an account of which was published by J. Payne Collier in Archaeologia. The Common Hunt was an official mentioned in the Liber Albus, where we learn that John Courtney was appointed to the office in 1417. The office was abolished in the year 1807. Of officers in immediate attendance on the mayor may be mentioned the sword-bearer and the sergeant at mace. The first notice of the office of sword-bearer occurs in the Liber Albus, 1419, and the first record in the minute-books of the appointment of a sword-bearer is in 4 Henry the Sixth. 1426. Mr. Hope remarks that, quote, The absence of earlier notices is probably due to the fact that the sword-bearer was appointed, according to the entry in the Liber Alus, as proper costage du maire, and not at the cost of the city. End quote. The sword-bearer is remarkable on account of the distinctive head-covering or cap of maintenance which is appropriated to his office. It is not known when the City of London first possessed a mace or maces, but Mr. Hope refers to the Liber Customarum to prove that as early as 1252 there were sergeants who carried staves of some kind as emblems of authority. Quote, we know this from the claim put forth on the occasion of the Itter of the Pleas of the Crown held at the Tower in 1321, that the Mayor and citizens of London should have their own porter and usher and their own sergeants with their staves. As it was shown that the same claim had been successfully made in 1276 to 1277, and in 1252 it was allowed. End quote. Mr. Hope quotes from Letterbook F a record of the appointment of Robert Flambard as mace bearer in 1338, and from this it is clear that the office was not then a newly created one. For the due carrying on of the business of the corporation, several new offices have at various times been established but the foregoing are the officials who carried on the work of the city during the Middle Ages. Much of interest might have been added of these men, but it is only necessary here to refer to them generally as those to whom so much of the history of London was due. The chief business of the city has been carried on for many centuries in the Guildhall, which is of unknown antiquity. It is almost certain that the building was in existence on the same spot as early as the 12th century. It was rebuilt in 1411, and has been greatly altered at different times since then. The most interesting portion of the old building will be found in the extensive Gothic crypt. The open timber roof of the hall was not added until the alterations of 1866 to 1870 by the late Sir Horace Jones. End of chapter 9 End of section 18this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley-Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley. Chapter 10. Commerce and Trade. Part 1. The earliest trade recorded as carried on in the British Isles consisted of the exchange of tin with the Gauls, and perhaps also with Phoenician traders. Under Roman rule, 
the agricultural and mineral resources of Britain were more fully developed. Julius Caesar praised the South Down mutton, and Rome was supplied with oysters, which came from Whitstable and Reculvers, Regulbium, and were carried through the river Stour, forming the western boundary of the island of Thanet, and were exported from Richborough, Rutupie. Corn was exported in large quantities, and Londinium, the principal port for trading with Gaul, was the centre of commerce. There is no notice of commerce during the early Anglo-Saxon period, but Bede, at the beginning of the 8th century, speaks of London as a great market which traders frequented by land or sea. The letter of protection for English pilgrims given to offer of Mercia by Charlemagne, A.D. 796, which refers to trade carried on by them, has been called, quote, the first English commercial treaty, end quote. One remarkable fact is that this commerce was mainly in the hands of foreigners. London, in the early times, was mainly a city of foreigners. Hence the jealousy of the natives which grew in strength as time went on. Commerce greatly increased during the reign of Edgar, so that Ethelred, his son, deemed it time to draw up a code of laws to regulate the customs to be paid by the merchants of France and Flanders, as well as by the emperor's men. But the promulgation of the laws of Athelstan, A.D. 925 to 929, which ordained that a merchant who had made three sea voyages should be of right a thane, is proof of the small number as well as of the importance of such native traders. We learn from the colloquies of the abbot Elfric, 11th century, that most of the commodities imported into England were articles of luxury. The port of Dowgate was granted to the city of Rouen as early as Edward the Confessor's reign, and the right was afterwards confirmed. The Confessor also gave a portion of Wehrmanni Acre within London, quote, with the wharf belonging to it, and with its market rights and places for merchandise, its stalls and shops, its rents and dues and rights, its toll and wharfage, end quote, to St. Peter's at Ghent, which grant was confirmed by William I, 1081. After the conquest, communication with Normandy naturally increased greatly. Rouen was particularly favoured, and was granted a monopoly of trade with Ireland and freedom of commerce in London. In the 12th century, silver was imported in exchange for meat, fish, and wool, which were all sent to the manufacturing districts of the Low Countries. Corn was sometimes exported, but not without a license. The House or Guild of the Merchants of Almain, otherwise called the House of the Teutonics, was formed about the year 1169, though the Germans, under the name of Easterlings, are known to have traded here during the Saxon period. The Guild flourished in London as the merchants of the steel yard till the time of Elizabeth, when their special privileges were abolished by royal decree. Hallam tells us that from the middle of the 12th to the 13th century, the traders of England became more and more prosperous. The towns on the southern coast exported tin and other metals in exchange for the wines of France. Those on the eastern coast sent corn to Norway, and the sink ports bartered wool against the stuffs of Flanders. The export of wool and the import of cloth were prohibited in 1261, and the prohibition was repeated in 1271. The cause of this prohibition may be illustrated by reference to a particular import, woad, which seems to show that a native woolen manufacture existed, 
although all the finer cloth came from Flanders. The restrictions originally imposed upon the woad merchants would not allow them a settlement in the city, nor permit them to store their woad, which they had to sell as best they could on the wharf where it was landed. In 1237, however, the merchants of Amiens, Corby, and Nesle were allowed, by special arrangement, greater freedom in the disposal of their woad and other wares. In the end, the woad merchants settled in Cannon Street, Candlewick Street, the very centre of the cloth trade in London, as Lydgate tells us in his London Lickpenny. Quote, then I went forth by London stone, throughout all Canwick Street, draper's much cloth offered me a known. Footnote No woollen cloth was allowed to be dyed black except with woad. The whole history of the cultivation and use of woad is one of great interest. It was cultivated in England from the earliest times, and the trade was ruined by the indigo growers as they in turn have been ruined in our own day by the manufacture in Germany of synthetic indigo. End of footnote. London was the seat of trade in Eastern luxuries, which became known largely through the influence of the Crusades. Silks, fruits, spices and Greek wines were brought here by the Italian fleet which, after 1317, regularly visited England. In the 13th and 14th centuries, the importance of our commerce is shown by the appearance of regulations for its promotion in the statute book. The Statute of Merchants is dated 1283 to 1285, and the Carta Mercatoria, 1303. The trade with Bordeaux was very active, and largely carried on by English ships from London, Bristol, Dover, and Hull. Wool, herrings, lead, copper and tin were taken out in these ships, also pilgrims as passengers. The ships returned to England laden with wine and corn when the home production was short. In 1350, 141 ships carried 13,429 tons of wine from Bordeaux to England. English merchants travelled largely and made their appearance at the great continental fairs. As commerce increased, the enemies of commerce also increased and we find therefore that the Thames and the open sea were infested by bands of pirates. Soon after pirates had made a successful descent upon Scarborough, John Philippot, a prominent Londoner, set himself to break up the conspiracy. He fitted out a fleet at his own expense and, putting to sea, succeeded in capturing the ringleader, a feat which rendered him so popular as to excite the jealousy of the Duke of Lancaster and other nobles. His fellow citizens showed their appreciation of his character by electing him to succeed Brember in the mayoralty in October 1387. How serious this danger really was may be seen from the fact that not even the king was safe. When Henry IV, in order to escape the pestilence raging in London, crossed from Queensborough in Sheppey to Lee in Essex, on his way to Plashy, though convoyed by Lord Camoys with certain ships of war, narrowly escaped capture by pirates. A vessel containing part of his baggage and retinue, together with his vice-chamberlain, fell into the hands of the enemy. This scandal naturally created a great stir, and Lord Camoys was tried on a charge of correspondence with the enemy. He was acquitted, but his innocence appears to have been considered doubtful. Pirates lurked in the Thames or blockaded the mouth of the river, 
and to prevent them from landing within the area of the city, the streets leading to the river were defended by chains. Still further to defend London from privateers, John Philippot offered to build, at his own cost, a stone tower sixty king's feet in height near Ratcliffe, provided the Corporation of London would levy sixpence in the pound on the rental of the city and build a corresponding tower on the opposite side of the river so that an iron chain might be stretched from one tower to the other to protect the shipping of the river from night attack. The danger was so imminent that the Common Council agreed to the proposal, but, as the alarm died away, this scheme of defence was laid aside. In 1370, quote, The mayor, aldermen, and commonalty were given to understand that certain galleys, with a multitude of armed men therein, were lying off the foreland of Tanit, Thanet. End quote. And it was therefore ordered that, quote, Every night, watch shall be kept between the Tower of London and Billingsgate, with forty men at arms and sixty archers. End quote. Which watch the men of the trades underwritten, quote, agreed to keep in succession each night in the form as follows On Tuesday, the drapers and the tailors. On Wednesday, the mercers and the apothecaries. On Thursday, the fishmongers and the butchers. On Friday, the pewterers and the vintners. On Saturday, the goldsmiths and the saddlers. On Sunday, the ironmongers, the armourers and the cutlers. On Monday, the tourers, couriers, the spuriers, the bowyers and the girdlers. End quote. These pirates gave a great deal of trouble up to a much later date, and the wardenship of the sink ports, then held by Cecil, was a busy post when, as in May 1616, pirate vessels were captured between Broadstairs and Margate. In connection with the trade and commerce of London, fairs and markets held a very important position, but here it will only be possible to make a passing allusion to them. Bartholomew Fair, Smithfield, granted to the prior of St. Bartholomew's by Henry II, 1133, was for several centuries the great cloth fair of England. Its memory is kept alive by the street which is still known as Cloth Fair. After the dissolution of the monasteries, the fair was annually opened by the mayor, attended by the aldermen. It long outlived its use and reputation, and was not finally abolished until the 19th century had run its course for some years. In the city letter-books there are references to other less important fairs, Thus, a fair then only recently established in Soper Lane, now Queen Street, Cheapside, and known as Nain, or Noon, Fair, was abolished about 1307, owing to its being the resort of thieves and cut-purses. There was also a fair called La Novelle Fair, which was held in the parish of St. Nicholas Acons. Many fairs were held at different times in Southwark, Westminster, and other places in the neighbourhood of London. How important the great fairs of the Middle Ages were may be seen in one instance among others by the fact that the citizens of London resorted in such numbers to St. Botolph's Fair, annually held at Boston, County Lincoln, on St. Botolph's Day, 17th of June, that all business in the court of Hustings ceased, and the court was closed for a week. In the fourth book of the Liber Albus, there is a list of letters and other documents relating to markets and fairs several of which relate to St. Botolph's Fair. In Saxon times, buying and selling could only be lawfully carried out before the reeve of Folkmoot, a practice which necessitated a gathering in towns at fixed times, 
from which custom grew up the practice of each town having a market day. As a rule, this was on a Sunday, and the marketplace was often situated in the churchyard, close beneath the sheltering walls of the parish church. By the statute Winton, 13 Edward I, fairs and markets were forbidden to be held in churchyards, and the statute 27 Henry VI was the first enactment intended to enforce a due observance of Sunday. To avoid the scandal of holding fairs and markets on Sundays and upon high feast days, it was decreed that, quote, fairs and markets shall not be holden on Sundays or on festivals, end quote, with the exception of four Sundays in harvest. There is no public right of holding fairs or markets, and the privilege emanates from the prerogative of the crown. From the earliest times, the streets of London were occupied by the various trades who obtained the privilege of using them as marketplaces. The market of West Cheap or Cheapside was the chief of these public places, but almost all the trades had their appointed stations in the different streets, and in many cases the trades were not allowed to sell their wares in other places than those assigned to them. In the time of Edward I, it was ordered, quote, that all manner of victuals that are sold by persons in cheap upon Cornhull and elsewhere in the city, such as bread, cheese, poultry, fruit, hides and skins, onions and garlic, and all other small victuals, for sale as well by denizens as by strangers, shall stand midway between the kennels of the streets as to be a nuisance to no one, under pain of forfeiture of the article. End quote. Quote, the pavement in cheap, End quote, was a recognised marketplace for corn, probably situated near the church of St. Michael Le Kern, at the west end of Cheapside. Stocks Market, which stood on the site of the present mansion house, was founded in 1283, and the rents were appropriated to the maintenance of London Bridge. In 1324, the wardens of the bridge made complaint that certain fishmongers and butchers had of late abandoned the market house had erected sheds in the King's Highway and other adjoining places, and sold their flesh and fish there, quote, whereby the rents aforesaid, which formed the greater part of the maintenance of the said bridge, had become immensely reduced to the great peril and damage of the bridge and of the city, and of all passing over such bridge, End quote. Staples were markets where only certain goods called staple goods were allowed to be sold. The company of merchants of the staple had a monopoly of exporting the staple commodities of England, and certain staple towns, which were constantly changed, were appointed as centres of the trade. The chief export was wool, quote, the sovereign treasure, end quote, of England, wherewith she was said to keep the whole world warm. In 1328, and again in 1334, all staples were abolished and trade was free according to the Great Charter. Free trade did not last long, and the staple was fixed at Bruges in 1344. By the Ordinance of Staple, 27 Edward III, 1353, ten staple towns were appointed in England, Wales and Ireland, Westminster and London together being considered as one of the ten. The staple of Bruges was removed from Bruges to Westminster by this Act. In 1360, part of this Act was repealed. Calais remained a staple till it was temporarily suppressed in 1369, Statute 43, Edward III. By this act, the staple of wool was in future to be confined to the following English ports. 
Newcastle, Hull, Boston, Yarmouth, Queenborough, Westminster, Chichester, Winchester, Exeter, and Bristol. The staple towns continued to be changed, and there were great complaints made by the English in Tudor times that the staple was fixed abroad. We read that, quote, The carriage out of wool to the staple is a great hurt to the people of England, though it be profitable both to the prince and to the merchant also. End quote. The changes in the wool trade in England during the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries caused an industrial revolution, the effects of which are well marked in our literature. The raw material was no longer exported, but in its place the cloth made here was sent to countries which had formerly supplied us with cloth in exchange for our wool. In consequence, the number of wealthy merchants increased. With this prosperity the country became proud, and the lawgivers did all they could to foster the manufactures of the country. Footnote. Mr. W. J. Ashley notes that the earliest instance of the prohibition of the export of wool is found in the action of the Oxford Parliament of 1258. The barons then, quote, decreed that wool of the country should be worked up in England and should not be sold to foreigners, and that everyone should use woolen cloth made within the country, end quote, unless people should be dissatisfied at having to put up with the rough cloth of England, they bade them, quote, not to seek over-precious raiment, end quote. English Economic History and Theory, 1888-1893 End of footnote A statute passed in 1463, 3 Edward IV, prohibited by enumeration the import of almost all wrought goods in order that, quote, the English artificers may have employment, end quote. A similar act was passed in the reign of Henry VIII, by which foreign books could only be introduced in sheets, so that work could be provided for the English bookbinders. The famous poem written by Adam de Molyneux, Molines or Molins, Bishop of Chichester and Keeper of the Privy Seal, died 1450, which was entitled The Libel of English Policy, 1437, contains a full account of commodities exchanged between the countries of Western Europe. The full title of this important libellum shows its object. Quote, Here beginneth the prologue of the process of the libel of English policy, exhorting all England to keep the sea environ, and namely the narrow sea, showing what profit cometh thereof, and also worship and salvation to England and to all English men. End quote. The leading idea of the little book, as may be seen from the title, is that which agitates the public mind at the present time, and shows how important it is that England should keep the seas and protect the food and clothing coming to this country. In connection with the commerce and trade of the country, the official weighing of goods was a matter of great importance. As far back as the Saxon period, standard weights and measures were preserved in the city of London, and with these the weights and measures throughout the kingdom had to conform. The king's great beam, or tron, was used for weighing coarse goods by the hundredweight, and the small beam, or balance, for silks, spiceries, and goods sold by the poundweight. The king's weighhouse in Fish Street Hill, London, and the tron church in Edinburgh remind us of the old weighing machines of the country. It was formerly the custom to allow a margin to buyers at the tron. According to the Liber de Antiquis, 
In 1305, the weigher allowed the buyer a draft of four pounds in every hundredweight. At the present day, there is a survival of this custom in the tea trade and some others, for the importer gives a precisely similar draft to the dealer, viz. one pound in every chest of tea of twenty-eight pounds. Foreigners and strangers were not permitted, as a rule, to take up their residence within the walls of London for a longer period than forty days, and were subject to several restrictions as to trade. Exceptions were, however, made from time to time with various foreign towns. Natives of Denmark enjoyed the privilege of sojourning in London all the year through, in addition to which they had a right to all the benefits of, quote, the law of the City of London, end quote. That is, they were entitled to the right of resorting to fair or to market in any place throughout England. Norwegians had the same right of sojourning in London all the year, but did not enjoy, quote, the law of the city, end quote, as they were prohibited from leaving it for the purposes of traffic. In February 1303, the king, by the Carta Mercatoria, granted exceptional privileges to foreign merchants, and these concessions caused great indignation among his subjects at home. A tax was exacted from these foreigners, and in 1309, the Friscobaldi were appointed by the king to receive the new custom, and two years later he ordered their arrest for failing to render an account of the money received under that head. Their detention, however, was of short duration. The act was repealed in 1311, and again enacted in 1322, but with the accession of Edward III it was again repealed. Foreign commerce is said to have been better governed than inland trade, for the king had an arbitrary authority in the regulation of trading. In dealing with the trade of London, it is necessary to say something about the origin of guilds, but this is a most difficult question, respecting which very different opinions are held by writers on the subject. It will be impossible to discuss these points at all fully in this chapter, and therefore a few dates will be found sufficient for the present purpose. Medieval guilds were voluntary associations established for mutual assistance. It is quite easy to show the likeness between them and the Roman collegia, but to do this is futile, because few now believe in any connection between these two institutions. Similar circumstances often cause similar institutions to arise. In the Middle Ages, few men and women could stand alone, and combination was a positive necessity for existence, and the people soon found that union is strength. The great authority on this subject is Mr. Toulmin Smith's work, entitled English Guilds, which was edited by his daughter, Miss Toulmin Smith, and published by the Early English Text Society in 1880. Prefixed to this great work is Dr. Brentano's valuable essay on the history of guilds, in which he writes, quote, I write to declare here most emphatically that I consider England the birthplace of guilds. End quote. Some writers have fixed upon the second half of the ninth century as the date of the origin of guilds, but Miss Toulmin Smith points out that among the laws of Inner, A.D. 688 to 725, are two touching the liability of the brethren of a guild in the case of slaying a thief. Alfred, A.D. 871 to 879, still further recognized the brotherly guild spirit in his laws as to manslaughter by a kinless man, 
and again where a man who has no relatives is slain. Dr. Brentano writes, quote, An already far advanced development of the guilds is shown by the Judicia Civitatis Londoniae, the statutes of the London guilds, which were reduced to writing in the time of King Athelstan. From them, the guilds in and about London appear to have united into one guild, and to have framed common regulations for the better maintenance of peace, for the suppression of violence, especially of theft and the aggressions of the powerful families, as well as for carrying out rigidly the ordinances enacted by the king for that purpose. End quote. A large division of the old guilds were purely social, and there is no trace of merchant guilds before the Norman conquest, while craft guilds did not come into existence until early in the 12th century. Dr. Brentano writes, quote, Though the merchant guilds consisted chiefly of merchants, yet, from the first, craftsmen, as such, were not excluded from them on principle, if only such craftsmen possessed the full citizenship of the town, which citizenship, with its further development, depended on the possession of estates of a certain value situated within the territory of the town. The strict separation which existed between the merchants and the crafts probably arose only by degrees. Originally, the craftsmen, no doubt, traded in the raw materials which they worked with. End quote. Mr. Ashley is of opinion that Dr. Brentano exaggerated both the independence and the economic importance of the trade guilds. He further writes, quote, We do not know whether there had ever been a guild merchant in London. However, in 1191, by the recognition of its commune, the citizens obtained complete municipal self-government and, consequently, the recognition of the same rights over trade and industry as a guild merchant would have exercised. End quote. Dr. Gross, in his work on the guild merchant, says that he can find no evidence of the existence of a merchant guild in London. Still, there were trade guilds which were aristocratic in origin and governed by the great merchants who were the chief landowners of London. Mr. C.G. Crump, however, has lately found direct mention of the Guild Merchant of London in 1252 in a charter of that date. Charter Roll 37 Henry III. While pointing out that this was apparently unknown to Dr. Gross, as he decides against the existence of any such institution, he adds, quote, This charter, while it suggests a doubt on the point, is not conclusive, because it is a very exceptional document. There is no other charter of its kind during the whole reign of Henry III, and a chancery clerk endeavouring to draft a charter to convert a Florentine merchant into a citizen of London might well have thought fit to mention a guild merchant as a matter of common form even if none actually existed. End quote. The year 1180 is an important one in the history of guilds, for then these bodies were required to pay their fines or licenses in token and recognition of their allegiance to the crown. There were eighteen of these, which were immersed as adulterine guilds, the goldsmiths, the pepperers and the butchers being among them. The document containing this list is translated by Herbert in his work on the companies, where it is suggested that the fining of these proves that the guilds must have been numerous, because some of them only could have subjected themselves to the penalty. The Mercers claim an existence at a still earlier date, 1172, and when the Saddlers are mentioned immediately after the conquest, 
they are said to possess ancient statutes. Gradually, the influence of the craftsmen made itself felt, and the craft guilds came into existence, but the aristocratic traders would not recognize them. The craftsmen found an enthusiastic patron in Thomas Fitzthomas, the popular mayor, 1261 to 1265. His conduct disgusted Arnold Fitzthedmar, the city alderman and chronicler, who complains that, quote, This mayor, during the time of his mayoralty, had so pampered the city populace that, styling themselves the commons of the city, they had obtained the first voice in the city. For the mayor, in doing all that he had to do, acted and determined through them, and would say to them, Is it your will that so it shall be? And then, if they answered, Ya, yeah, ya, yeah, so it was done. And on the other hand, the aldermen or chief citizens were little or not at all consulted on such matter, but were in fact just as though they had not existed. End quote. After the Battle of Evesham, the city was taken into the king's hands, 1265 to 1270, and a very despotic and wicked action was perpetrated. Fitz Thomas and some other prominent citizens were summoned to Windsor, and there were kept prisoners. Some of these regained their liberty, but nothing more was heard of Fitz Thomas, as Dr. Reginald Sharp writes. Quote, from the time that he entered Windsor Castle, he disappears from public view. That he was alive in May 1266, at least in the belief of his fellow citizens, is shown by their cry for the release of him and his companions who are at Windleshaws. End quote. The craftsman lost a valiant friend, but another was raised up in his place. Walter Hervey, who was hated by the aldermen for his democratic opinions, but loved by the commons, was elected mayor in 1272. Fresh ordinances for the regulation of various crafts were drawn up, and to these the mayor, on his own responsibility, attached the city seal. When his year of office expired, these so-called charters were called in question, and in 1274 they were examined in the hustings before all the people and declared void. The craft guilds were supposed to be defeated, but this was not really so, for the merchants found that the struggle between the trade guilds and the craft guilds was an unequal one. They therefore, with much worldly wisdom, joined the latter, and gradually gained an ascendancy in them. Mr. Ashley affirms that from the reign of Edward II, the guild system was no longer merely tolerated, but it was fostered and extended. The years which followed the Peace of Bretigny, until war broke out afresh in 1369, witnessed the reorganization of many of the trade and craft guilds. In 1376, the guilds wrested for a time from the wards the right of electing members of the city's council. The guilds continued to elect until 1384, when the right of election was again transferred to the wards. The names of the representatives of the guilds forming the first common council of the kind are placed on record in letterbook H. End of chapter 10, part 1. End of section 19. Section 20 of the Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley Jones. 
The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley. Chapter 10 Commerce and Trade, Part 2. The year 1388 to 1389 was an important one in the history of guilds. The writs of twelve Richard II had important effects, and the returns formed the chief substance of Mr. Toolman Smith's English guilds. There were two distinct writs. A. The writ for returns from the social guilds. B. The writ for returns from craft guilds. Toolman Smith printed the writs with these side notes. A. Quote, the sheriffs of London, and of every shire in England, shall, by authority of the Parliament that lately met at Cambridge, make proclamation calling on the master and wardens of all the social guilds, all guilds and brotherhoods whatsoever, to send up returns before the second day of February, A.D. 1388-9. B. The sheriffs of London, and of every shire in England, shall, by authority of the Parliament that lately met at Cambridge, make proclamation calling on the masters, wardens and overlookers of all guilds of crafts holding any charter or letters patent, to send up before the second day of February, 1388-9, copies of such charters and letters upon penalty of forfeiture. End quote. The original writs were returned by the London sheriffs with this endorsement. Quote, when and by whom proclamation was made in London and the suburbs. Fleet Street in the suburbs. The Standard in Westcheap. The Leadenhall, Cornhill. St. Magnus Church, Bridge Street. St. Martin's Church, Vintry. Southwark. End quote. In Mr. Toolman Smith's book, only three of the returns relate to London, and these are not from craft guilds. They are the Guild of Garlickhithe, the Guild of St. Catherine, Aldersgate, and the Guild of Saints Fabian and Sebastian, Aldersgate. It is not necessary to give extracts from these returns, but we can obtain a good idea of the objects of these guilds from Mr. Toolman Smith's side notes, which are as follows. Garlickhithe. Quote, the guild was begun in 1375 to nourish good fellowship. All brethren must be of good repute. Each shall pay six shillings and eightpence on entry. There shall be wardens who shall gather in the payments and yield an account thereof yearly. A livery suit shall be worn. The brethren and sisterin shall hold a yearly feast. Two shillings a year shall be paid by each. Four meetings touching the guild's welfare shall be held in each year. Free gifts by the brethren. Ill-behaved brethren shall be put out of the guild. No livery suit shall be sold within a year. On death of any, all the rest shall join in the burial service and make offerings under penalty. In case of quarrel, the matter shall be laid before the wardens. Whoever disobeys their award shall be put out of the guild, and the other shall be helped. Weekly help to all seven-year brethren in old age and in sickness, and to those wrongfully imprisoned. Newcomers shall swear to keep the ordinances. Every brother chosen warden must serve, or pay forty shillings. End quote. St. Catherine. Quote. These are the ordinances of the guild. Oath on entry and a kiss of love, charity and peace. Weekly help in poverty, old age, sickness, 
or loss by fire or water, etc. Payments by brethren and sisterin. Members of the guild shall go to church and afterwards choose officers. Burials shall be attended. The guild shall bear charge of burials. Any brother dying within ten miles round London shall have worshipful burial. All costs thereof shall be made good by the guild. Loans to guild brethren out of the guild stock on pledge or surety. Wax lights to be found and used at times named. Further services after death. Newcomers by assent only. Four men shall keep the goods of the guild and render an account yearly. Assent of all the guild to new ordinances. The goods of the guild are a vestment, a chalice, and a mass book. Price of ten marks. End quote. Saints Fabian and Sebastian. Quote. Oath on entry and a kiss of love, charity, and peace. Weekly help in poverty, old age, sickness, or loss by fire or water, etc. The young to be helped to get work. Payments by brethren and sisterin. Four days of meeting in the year when all must attend under penalty. Burials shall be attended. The guild shall bear charge of burials. Those dying within ten miles round London shall be fetched to London for burial. Loans to guild brethren out of the guild stock on pledge or surety. Wax lights to be found and used at times named. Ill-behaved brethren shall be put out of the guild. Entry of new brethren. Four men shall keep the goods of the guild and render an account yearly. Assent of all the guild to new ordinances. Grant of a house in Aldersgate worth four pounds thirteen shillings and fourpence a year, less quit rent of thirteen shillings a year, the profits of which are applied in aid of the guild. End quote. These regulations, with their general likeness and slight divergences, help us to understand the guild life of the Middle Ages, which, it will be seen, was essentially practical and helpful to the growth of good feeling among those who were brought together in constant intercourse. The rules of the guild were often very strict, and men of evil life were put out of the fraternity. Moreover, idlers and ne'er-do-wells were not to expect to be relieved from the funds of the guild. From the ordinances of the Guild of St. Anne in the Church of St. Lawrence Jewry, we learn that, quote, if any man be of good state, and use him to lie long in bed, and at rising of his bed, nay will not work but go to the tavern, and in this manner falleth poor, and trust to be helpen by the fraternity, that man shall never have good, nay help of company, neither in his life nor at his death, but he shall be put off for evermore of the company. End quote. Mr. Toulmin Smith's returns are taken from the originals in the public record office, and, has already been noted, by some fatality there are no records of the craft guilds. The next great point in the history of guilds is connected with their abolition by the act of 1st Edward VI, 1547, a most iniquitous measure. Miss Toulmin Smith tells us how her father's indignation was roused by his researches into the story of the fate of the guilds. Quote, 
In a manuscript note, he remarks that for the abolition of monasteries, there was some colour, and after, professed inquiries as to manners. Moreover, allowances were made to all ranks. But in case of guilds, much wider, no pretense of inquiry or of mischief, and no allowance whatsoever. A case of pure wholesale robbery and plunder, done by an unscrupulous faction to satisfy their personal greed, under cover of law. No more gross case of wanton plunder is to be found in the history of all Europe, no page so black in English history. End quote. Of course there is another side to the question, and Mr. Ashley, who discusses very fully the consequence of the act of Edward VI, thinks that it has been unfairly condemned. He says that, so far as the companies were concerned, the bill did not propose to take from them anything more than the revenues actually used for religious purposes, and further that the statute neither abolished nor dissolved nor suppressed nor destroyed the companies, but left all their corporate powers and rights intact, except so far as religious usages were concerned. We must remember, however, that Mr. Toulmin Smith's indignation was roused not so much by the forfeiture of certain trusts in the hands of the livery companies as by the robbery of the small guilds all over the country. The early history of most of the city companies is rather disconnected, and, owing to the loss and destruction of documents, the mode by which the craft guilds were amalgamated with the livery companies is not very easy to follow. Still, the likeness between the two institutions is so marked, and their duties so similar, that there is no difficulty in acknowledging the fusion. To take a single instance, it may be mentioned that the original Guild of Goldsmiths had exactly similar public duties to perform that are now performed by the present Goldsmiths' Company. This connection has usually been taken for granted, but it is necessary to allude to the question here, because Mr. Lofty, a high authority on the history of London, has strongly disputed this connection. In 1883, Mr. Lofty wrote, quote, The identification of the adulterine guilds with the later companies is scarcely possible. End quote. And again in 1887, quote, The Weavers' Company is not the only one which claims to represent directly an ancient guild but it is the only one whose claim has anything so like a reasonable foundation. End quote. These are, however, only casual remarks, but in his latest work he has elaborated his attack in the following terms. Quote, Popular errors are very difficult to deal with effectually. One of the most persistent is that which confounds the city guilds with the city companies. Here, two widely different things are inextricably confused and that, too, not in mere catchpenny popular books, but in books pretending to be more or less authority. In the common run of London histories, guild means company and company means guild. To begin with, there are now no guilds in London. By an act passed in 1557, all religious guilds were abolished and all guildable property was confiscated. But as there were no guilds not religious, and as the property of guilds was held in trust to provide burials, masses, and sometimes chantries for deceased members, the guilds and their land, and their money, and their priestly vestments, and their illuminated manuscripts, all ceased to exist absolutely, and not only so, but it became penal to revive them. 
A city company which calls itself a guild renders itself liable to forfeiture, a penalty which would, of course, be rather difficult to enforce. End quote. There are two statements here which may be challenged. One, that all guilds were religious, and the other that all guilds were abolished by Act of Parliament. Certainly the guilds which were not instituted for purposes of trade protection have often been styled religious. But Mr. Toulmin Smith preferred to class them as social guilds, and I think wisely. As already stated, their objects were entirely practical and social. Mr. Toulmin Smith writes, quote, The guilds were lay bodies, and existed for lay purposes, and the better to enable those who belong to them rightly and understandingly to fulfil their neighbourly duties as freemen in a free state. End quote. Religious duties were performed, but these were only incidental to the life of the time, and consisted mostly of services connected with the serious occasions in the life of laymen, which were general in the periods that have been styled, quote, ages of faith, end quote. As to the second point, a reference to the statute of 1 Edward VI will show us that the craft guilds are exempted from its operation. In the Statutes of the Realm, one of the side notes to the, quote, Act whereby certain chantries, colleges, free chapels, and the possessions of the same be given to the king's majesty, end quote, runs as follows, quote, All brotherhoods or guilds and their possessions, except companies of trade vested in the king, end quote. The text is, quote, Other than such corporations, guilds, fraternities, companies, and fellowships of mysteries or crafts, end quote. I think we must allow that the terms of this act strongly corroborate the general belief that the old craft guilds and the later companies were so closely connected as to be practically the same. Having dealt with the general question of guilds, we can now pass on to consider the influence of the different trades upon London life. The origin of the companies seems to have been largely connected with the result of a combination of the numerous sections of a particular trade. Some trades were so important that they could stand alone. Thus, the Goldsmiths' Guild became the Goldsmiths' Company. But most of the other companies were formed by the union of more than one guild. A marked feature of the old trades of London was the minute subdivisions which took place among them. Thus, there were hatters, cappers, chapelers, makers of caps, and hewers. The latter were makers of hewers, or rough, hairy caps. The hewers and cappers were united to the hatters by charter of Henry VII in the sixteenth year of his reign, and again united in the following year to the haberdashers by the king's license under his great seal. The company subsequently known and chartered as the Cloth Workers was first incorporated by letters patent of Edward IV in 1482 as the quote, Fraternity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary of the Shearmen of London. End quote. The Fullers were taken into union in 1528, thereby constituting the Cloth Workers' Company. A convincing proof of the connection of the guilds with companies and the natural succession of the latter from the former is seen in this case of the Cloth Workers' Company. It appears from a deed dated the 15th of July, 1456, that John Badby did remise, etc., unto John Hungerford and others, citizens and shearmen of London, quote, a tenement and mansion house, shops, cellars, 
and other the appurtenances, lying in Minchin Lane, and their heirs forever. End quote. This is the site of the Cloth Workers' Hall, the Cloth Workers' Company being the natural heirs of the Guild of Shearmen. There is much interest connected with the occupation of the Shearmen, who sheared the nap of wool. Woolen clothes in the Middle Ages were expected to last a lifetime. When the new nap was very long, and as the clothes became shabby, it was customary to have them shorn, a process which was repeated as long as the stuff would bear it. In the delightful old ballad reprinted in Percy's Reliquies, quote, Take thy old cloak about thee, end quote. The old cloak that had been in wear for forty-four years was likely to be a sorry clout at the end of that time, which would hold out neither wind nor rain. Well might the husband resolve, quote, For once I'll new apparelled be, Tomorrow I'll to town and spend, For I'll have a new cloak about me. End quote. But the wife's plea for thrift and her statement, quote, It's pride that puts this country down, end quote, succeeds in the end, and the ballad ends, quote, As we began, we now will leave, and I'll take mine old cloak about me. End quote. The aid of the shearman was not merely called in by the poor, for we learn that the Countess of Leicester, Eleanor, third daughter of King John and wife of Simon de Montfort, in 1265 sent Heek the tailor to London to get her robes reshorn. The date of the ballad was probably early, although the king alluded to in the printed text is King Stephen, in that of the Scotch version Robert, and in the Percy manuscript a vague King Henry. The ballad must have had a wide popularity, for Shakespeare alludes to it twice. Iago quotes a whole stanza in Act Two of Othello, and Trinculo in Act Four of The Tempest evidently alludes to it when he says, quote, O King Stefano, O peer, O worthy Stefano, look what a wardrobe here is for thee. End quote. The number of trades connected with clothing was singularly numerous. Besides the shearmen, or Tondor, there were the Felipa, Felipa or Frippera, who dealt in second-hand clothes, and the Ferber or Furbisher of old clothes. Dr. Brentano points out that in all manufacturing countries, in England, Flanders, and Brabant, as well as in the Rhenish towns, the most ancient guilds were those of the weavers, and Mr. Ashley writes that the first craft guilds to come into notice were the weavers and fullers of woolen cloth. No weaver or fuller might go outside the town to sell his own cloth, and so interfere with the monopoly of the merchants, nor was he allowed to sell his cloth to any save a merchant of the town. The suppression did not continue for long, and in the reign of Henry III we find the feud between the citizens and the guild again in full force. When the authorities of the guild feared that the citizens would overpower them, they delivered their, quote, charter into the exchequer to be kept in the treasury there, and to be delivered to them again when they should want it, and afterwards to be laid up in the treasury, end quote. Mr. Green says that in 1300 the mayor had gained the right to preside in the weaver's court if he chose, and to nominate the wardens of the guild. In the fourteenth year of Edward II, A.D. 1320 to 1321, the privileges of the weavers came before a court of law. In spite of the distinguished position that the Guild of Weavers held in its early days, 
The present Weaver's Company only stands 42nd in the order of the livery companies. Many of the old trades of London have been entirely lost sight of, and their names only exist among the patronymics of the people. The great feud between the victualling and clothing trades of London was one of the most remarkable features of the 14th century. Some allusion has been made to this in Chapter 8 on the governors of the city, but a reference must also be made here in connection with the history of the London companies. After the Peasants' Revolt, London was the battlefield of rival factions. The friends of the king, Richard II, were found among the great merchants of the victualling trades. In one year, sixteen of the twenty-five aldermen were grocers, and Nicholas Brember was chief of them. The fishmongers, of whom Sir William Walworth was the leader, were scarcely less powerful. The victuallers were very unpopular, and the public have always specially resented any advance in the price of food. Complaints were rife in the chief cities of the country of the abuses of the victuallers, and an act, 12 Edward II, was passed to the effect that, quote, no officer of a city or borough shall sell wine or victuals during his office, end quote. This act was frequently evaded, and another act was passed in 1382. In the end, the act of Edward II was repealed. 3 Henry VIII, 1511 to 1512. Footnote. The reason given for the repeal of the Act of Edward II excluding victuallers from the office of mayor is that, quote, Since the making of the statute, many and the most part of all cities, boroughs, and towns corporate be fallen in ruin and decay, and not inhabited with merchants and men of such substance as they were at the time of making the statute. For at this day the dwellers and inhabitants of the same cities and boroughs be most commonly bakers, brewers, vintners, fishmongers, and other victuallers, and few or none other persons of substance. End quote. Mr. W. J. Ashley, in his Introduction to English Economic History and Theory, observes that, quote, Without further proof, it were hardly safe to build on the wide language of the preamble of a statute a conclusion which seems in obvious conflict with what we know of the generic course of events. End quote. In London, evidently, little or no attention was paid to the original Act of Edward II, but in other places this was not the case. The statute of Henry VIII provided that when the mayor was a victualler, two honest and discreet persons, not being victuallers, should be chosen to assist him in settling prices of victuals. End of footnote. John of Northampton, when he became mayor, took advantage of this act and began a policy of aggression directed against the victualling interest. He turned all his enemies off the governing body and victuallers were forbidden to hold office in the city. These feuds were very serious and the two leaders were unfortunate in their ends. Bremba was executed in 1388 and John of Northampton was sent to the tower and imprisoned in Tintagel Castle. A few words may be said here about the classes of trades represented by the guilds and companies, commencing with the bakers. The price of bread was regulated by law according to the price of wheat, and the mayor had the right to levy a halfpence for every quarter of corn sent to the mill. This tax was called pesage, from Pisa, a corruption of medieval Latin pensa, a weight. The right was called in question at the eater held in the tower in 1321,
but the matter was adjourned for the consideration of the king and his council. The fraudulent baker had a bad time, for he was sometimes carried about in a tumbrel, and at other times he was put in the pillory. For his first offence, the culprit was drawn upon a hurdle from Guildhall through the most populous and most dirty streets, with a defective loaf hanging from his neck. On a second occasion he was drawn from the Guildhall, quote, through the great streets of Cheap, end quote, to the pillory, which was usually erected in Cheap or Cheapside, and there he was exposed for one hour. For the third offence he was again drawn on the hurdle, his oven was pulled down, and he was compelled to forswear the trade in London forever. The use of the hurdle was discontinued in favour of the pillory in the reign of Edward II. Another offence punished by exposure in the pillory, besides short weight and bad quality, was the putting of iron in a loaf of bread to increase its weight. In the famine of 1258, when the Earl of Cornwall's sixty cargoes of grain arrived, the first thing the king had to do was to issue an ordinance against the greed of the middlemen, known as forestallers and regraters. No words appeared to have been found too strong to hurl at these unfortunate middlemen, but the regratresses, or female retailers who bought bread at the markets and delivered it from house to house, were contented with a small profit. These dealers were privileged by law to receive thirteen batches for twelve, hence the expression, a baker's dozen. This seems to have been the extent of their profits. It was once the practice of a baker to give each regratress who dealt with him sixpence on Monday morning by way of estrine or present, and threepence on Friday as courtesy money. But this was forbidden by public ordinance, and the bakers were ordered to let all such payments in future go towards increasing the size of the loaf, quote, to the profit of the people, end quote. Corn used to be stored by the city and the companies against times of scarcity, but the origin of the practice is obscure, and no obligation to provide corn appears to have been imposed upon any of the companies by the terms of their charters. Sir Simon Eyre, mayor in 1435, formed a public granary in Leadenor. Stowe and Fuller eulogised Sir Stephen Brown, who, in 1438, was energetic in his endeavours to get corn stored in the city granaries. In 1578, the farmers of the bridge house divided the store into twelve equal parts, and the same by lots were appropriated to the twelve companies, to each of them an equal part for the bestowing and keeping of the said corn. Pannier, or Pannier, Alley, leading from Newgate Street to Paternoster Row, was once the standing place for bakers with their bread panniers. The bakers of London were divided into white bakers, and brown or taut bakers, tertiarii, who made a coarse bread of unbolted meal. No maker of white bread was allowed to make taut, nor a taut baker to make white bread. House bread was prepared by the bakers of household bread, while hostelers, by whom it was exclusively used, were forbidden to make it. Similar trades were the pastelers, who made pies and other kinds of pastry, pie bakers and cooks. Butchers. The sale of butcher's meat seems to have been somewhat limited during the Middle Ages in comparison with the population, although the number of butchers within the city walls were quite sufficient to create a considerable nuisance. Smithfield was then the great cattle market, as it remained until our own time. 
lean swine were sold there, probably with the purpose of fattening them in the town. The chief meat markets within the city walls were Stocks Market and the flesh shambles of St Nicholas in Newgate Street and its vicinity. A lease of the latter place to the butchers in 1343 is recorded in Riley's memorials. The shocking condition of Newgate Street is indicated by such names as Stinking Lane, St Nicholas's Shambles and Blowbladder Street. There was a butcher's bridge on the Thames side near Baynard's Castle to which the offal was brought from Newgate Street through the streets and lanes of the city by which, quote, grievous corruption and filth have been generated. End quote. The evil, in fact, was so great that a royal order was issued in 1369 for the removal of Butcher's Bridge. The foreign butchers, or those who did not possess the freedom of the city, brought their meat to shambles just outside the civic boundary. On the west, near St. Clement's Church in the Strand, there was a butcher row, and in the east, immediately beyond Aldgate, was another butcher row. This last still exists as Aldgate Market, and consists of a row of butcher shops on the south side of the high street. Formerly imported animals were killed behind the shops. The unfortunate tradesmen had to submit to public enactment, by which the exact price of the commodities they sold was fixed. In the reign of Edward I, the carcass of the best ox was sold for thirteen shillings and fourpence, of the best pig for four shillings, of the best sheep for two shillings. The ill-treated butcher had no redress, for a provision was added to the order that if any person should withdraw himself from the trade by reason of the said ordinance, he should lose the freedom of the city, and be compelled to forswear the trade for ever. These instances of interference with trade continued for centuries, and we learn that in 1533 it was enacted that butchers should sell their beef and mutton by weight, beef for half a pence a pound, and mutton for three quarters of a pence. Stowe, in relating this, adds that at this time, and not before, foreign butchers were allowed to sell their flesh in Leadenhall Market. Fishmongers The information relating to the sale of fish in the city records proves how largely the population of London in the Middle Ages depended upon its ample supply. There was great variety, and a large number of enactments were made as to the sale. The fish mentioned in the Liber Albus as being sold in the London market are sturgeon, cod, ray, herring, bass, conger, sole, mackerel, surmullet, turbot, porpoise, haddock, sealing, sprats, salmon, shad, eels, pike, barbel, roach, dace, dabs, flounders, lampreys, smelts, sticklings, oysters, mussels, cockles, whelks, scallops, and stockfish imported from Prussia. Of these, sprats, herrings, mussels, whelks, and oysters are most often mentioned, but lobsters, crabs, and shrimps are not alluded to. Fish was not allowed to be sold retail upon the quays. The stalls in Stocks Market were occupied by the fishmongers on fish days and by the butchers on flesh days. Other retail markets for fish were held by the wall of St Margaret's Church, New Fish Street, by the wall of St Mary Magdalene's in Old Fish Street, and in Westcheap. Stowe writes of the first of these places, quote, In this Old Fish Street is one row of small houses, 
placed along in the mids of Knight Rider Street, which row is also off Bread Street Ward. These houses, now possessed by fishmongers, were at the first but movable boards or stalls set out on market days to show their fish there to be sold. But procuring license to set up sheds, they grew to shops, and by little and little to tall houses of three or four stories in height. End quote. Salmon, cod, and herrings are mentioned in the Liber Albus as being sold in the shops in the neighbourhood of Queenhithe. Old Fish Street and Old Fish Street Hill, which run from it to the Thames, with Queenhithe as their landing key, formed the chief fish market of London before Billingsgate supplanted Queenhithe. A curious regulation is found in a royal ordinance in existence as early as the reign of Henry III, by which the first boat in the season with fresh herrings from Yarmouth was forced to pay double custom at the quay. Fishmongers selling fish in large quantities to their customers were to sell by the basket, such basket to be capable of containing one bushel of oats and, if found deficient, to be burnt in open market. Each basket was also to contain one kind of sea fish, and the fishmongers were warned not to colour their baskets, or, in other words, not to put good fish on the top and inferior beneath. Very stringent regulations were also made with respect to the size of nets used for fishing in the Thames, and any such which were contrary to these regulations were ruthlessly destroyed. The trade of the stock fishmonger was quite distinct from that of the ordinary fishmonger, and these belonged respectively to two separate companies. They were united in 1537. Thames Street was formerly known as Stock Fishmonger Row. The abbot of St Albans enjoyed the privilege of buying fish directly of the fishermen, for which he paid the bailiff of the market a fee of one mark per annum. The monks, however, appeared to have taken an undue advantage of their privilege, and an order was issued by the hallmote of the fishmongers, quote, that good care be taken that the buyers of the abbey take out of the city fish for the use of the abbot and convent only. End quote. Polterers Many of the streets of London must have been almost impassable from the stalls of the traders and the chaffering of the buyers and sellers. This evil grew and the complaints of obstruction were great. Endeavours were made to provide covered markets, but so many of the trades had special stands appropriated to them, as we see on all sides by the names of the streets, that it was impossible to dislodge them. Free poulterers had several special localities appropriated to their use. One was Cornhill. They were ordered to stand at the west side of St Michael's Church and were strictly forbidden to sell to the east of the tun, the site of which and the conduit are now marked by an unused pump, nearly facing number 30 Cornhill. Another standing was close by and still retains the name of the poultry. Stowe tells that it was once known as Scalding Alley because the poultry which the poulterers sold was scalded there. Still another standing was in Newgate Street, close by the butcher's shambles. Foreign poulterers were ordered to sell their wares at the corner of Leadenall, known as the Carfukes or Carfax. The articles dealt in by poulterers were rabbits, game, eggs and poultry. Eggs were brought to market in baskets on men's backs, and poultry upon horses. The prices of poultry, like those of other food, were assessed by the mayor from time to time, and duly proclaimed. In the reign of Edward I, the best hen was sold for threepence, 
the best rabbit with the skin for fivepence and without for fourpence. One hundred eggs, one hundred and twenty to the hundred, for eightpence. A partridge for threepence, a plover for twopence, and eight larks for one pence. Footnote. These prices, obtained from the Liber Albus, are of great interest. Of course, it is necessary to bear in mind the great difference in the value of money. It is impossible to fix a uniform standard of comparison, but we may put the present value broadly at between twelve and twenty times that of the reign of Edward I, the latter being more likely to be a true one. It will thus be seen that much food was dearer in the Middle Ages than at present. A rabbit and its skin are considerably less valuable now, as also a partridge. End of footnote. The body of London citizens suffered from one great evil in marketing, and that was that lords and great people were allowed the pick of the market. It was a common practice for the purveyors and servants of these great people to visit the various markets between midnight and prime, 6 a.m., after which hour the poorer classes were allowed to market. It is thus ordered by a proclamation of Edward I that no poulterer, fishmonger, or regrater shall buy any kind of victuals for resale until prime has been run out at St. Paul's, quote, so that the buyers for the king and the great lords of the land and the good people of the city may make good their purchases so far as they shall need. End, quote. End of chapter 10, part 2. End of section 20. Section 21 of The Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley. Chapter 10 Commerce and Trade, Part 3. Grocers. The grocers, properly grocers or wholesale sellers in gross, were for some time the chief of the victualling companies. They were originally known as the pepperers of Soper Lane, and the apothecaries were associated with the grocers until they were incorporated as a distinct company in 1617. By various charters and ordinances, the company of grocers was entrusted with the examining, sorting, and passing of spices and drugs. They were empowered to enter the shops of grocers, druggists, confectioners, tobacconists, and tobacco cutters within the city and three miles around it, to seize and confiscate adulterated and unwholesome goods, and to fine and, in default of payment, imprison delinquent dealers. Brewers and Vintners A passing allusion must be made to the sale of drink in London, which has always been very considerable. Mr. Riley tells us that there is no mention of milk as an article of sale or otherwise in the Liber Albus, and butter must have been of very inferior quality, for it was sold by liquid measure. The ale tavern or ale house was a distinct establishment from the wine tavern. In 1309 the number of taverns in London was 354, whilst the number of brewers amounted to no less than 1,334. The ale brewed was a very different product from what we understand by the term now, as malt liquor was not hopped in those days. Hops were not used in the making of beer until the early years of the 16th century. 
Mr. Riley says that the best ale was no better than sweet wort, and so thin that it might be drunk in potations, pottle deep, without danger to the head. The smallest measure mentioned in the Liber Albus is the quart, so that it was evidently drunk in large quantities. It was used immediately after being made, as may be inferred from the fact that according to the Doomsday of St. Paul's, the brewings at the cathedral brewery took place twice a week throughout the year. Immediately after a brewing was finished, it was the duty of the brewer, or rather Brewster, for the business was almost entirely in the hands of women until the beginning of the 16th century, to send for the ale conner of the ward in order to taste the ale. If this officer was not satisfied with its quality, he, with the assent of his alderman, set a lower price upon it, which, upon sale thereof, was not to be exceeded. Fine, imprisonment, and even punishment by pillory was the result of reiterated breaches of the assize. The assize price of ale varied at different periods. At one time it was three-quarters of a penny per gallon and no more, but later the price was one and a halfpence for the best, and three-quarters of a penny to one penny for the second quality. The vintners were an important body, and were mostly located in the Vintry, a district which has kept its name to the present time. The Vintners' Company consisted of Vinatarii, or wine importers and merchants, and Tabernarii, tavern-keepers, or retailers of wine. The public taste in wine was not a very refined one in the Middle Ages, or possibly the liquor did not keep very well, as new wine was preferred to old. It was enacted that after the arrival of new wine at a tavern, none of it should be sold before the old was disposed of. There is no allusion in the Liber Albus to bottles or flasks, and all the wine seems to have been drawn from the wood. Taverners who sold sweet wines were forbidden to deal in other kinds. The sweet wines enumerated are Malvasy, a modern-day Malmsey, a Greek wine sold in the reign of Richard II at sixteen pence per gallon, Vernage, Vernaccia, a red Tuscan wine sold at two shillings, Crete, sold at one shilling, and wine of Provence, sold at the same price, probably a kind of Roussillon. By royal writ of 39 Edward III, only three taverns for the sale of sweet wines were in future to be permitted within the city, in Cheap, Walbrook, and Lombard Street. In the class of non-sweet wines were Rhenish, sold in the reign of Richard II, at eightpence per gallon, and Red, Vermeil, at sixpence. Other wines came from Gascony, Burgundy, Rochelle, and Spain. No wine was permitted to be sold till it had been submitted to a scrutiny and been duly gauged. In the reign of Edward III, four vintners were chosen yearly to assess the prices of wine. King's pricage, or custom, was taken according to a certain scale on all imported wines. The wine taverns were furnished with a pole projecting from the gable of the house and supporting a sign, or a bunch of leaves at the end, the bush of the proverb, good wine needs no bush. In one ordinance it is stated that the poles of the taverns of Cheapside and elsewhere were of such a length as to be in the way of persons on horseback, and so heavy as to cause the risk of greatly damaging the houses. In consequence of this it was enacted that from thenceforth no sign pole should be more than seven feet in length. No ale or wine tavern was allowed to remain open after curfew. The clothing trades are well represented among the city companies. 
The Mercers had the list of the twelve, and the freemen were originally, quote, chapmen in small or mixed wares, end quote. That is, those articles which were sold retail by the little balance or small scale, in contradistinction to those things sold by the beam, or in gross, as they did business in the mercery, Cheapside. Wadmull, a coarse woollen stuff, lake or fine linen, fustian, felt, etc., were among these small wares. Gradually the mercers of Cheap extended their dealings, became vendors of silks and velvets in the reign of Henry VI, and formed a mixed body of merchants and shopkeepers, leaving the small wares, or mercery proper, to the haberdashers. Sir William Stone held the position of mercer to Queen Elizabeth and supplied her with her wardrobe. The haberdashers imported a cloth at first styled halberject, and in the 14th century, hapatas, from which, as Mr. Riley suggests, the term haberdasher probably originated. Subsequently, the hurers and the hatters joined them. The merchant tailors and linen armourers are, in some documents, styled Mercatores Scissores, Scissors of London, Scissors and Fraternity of St. John Baptist, titles alike pointing to their being anciently both tailors and cutters, and also making the padding and interior lining of armour, as well as manufacturing garments. Tailors made dresses for both sexes, their prices, as usual, being regulated by public enactment. By ordinance of the reign of Edward III, it is declared that, quote, Tailors shall henceforth take for a robe garnished with silk eighteen pence, for a man's robe garnished with thread and buckram fourteen pence, also a coat and hood ten pence, also for a lady's long dress garnished with silk and sendale two shillings and sixpence, also for a pair of sleeves for changing fourpence. End quote. The Draper's Company is the third on the list of the twelve great companies and the second of the clothing companies, the Mercers being the first. Henry Fitz Aylwin, the first mayor of London, was a freeman of the Draper's Guild, to which he left by will an inn called the Chequer in the parish of St Mary Bothor. The Skinners represented the trade that dealt with furs. The furs mentioned in the Liber Albus as imported are Martin skins, rabbit skins, dressed wolfells, Spanish squirrel skins, and Gracevere, or grey work. In the reign of Edward I, an enactment was made that, quote, No woman, except a lady who is in the habit of using furs, shall have a hood furred with dressed wolfell, pellure. End quote. Women of ill fame were forbidden at one period to wear miniver or other furs, though at a later date they were permitted to use lamb's wool and rabbit skin. No mixed work, formed of different kinds of skins, was allowed to be made and no new fur was to be worked up with the old. Quote, the skinner unto the field moot also, his house in London is to straight and scars, to doon his craft, some time it was not so. O lords, ye've unto your men here pars, that so doon, and acquent him bet with Mars. God of battle, he lueth non array, that hurteth manhood at prief or essay. The Raiment of Princes by Thomas Hockleave. End quote. The Cloth Workers' Company, formed by a junction of the guilds of Shearmen and Fullers, has already been alluded to. 
The minor companies connected with the clothing trades require some notice here. The Cordwainers held a prominent position, but in the reign of Edward I, 1303, there were public complaints of frauds and irregularities brought against them, and charges were made that they mixed inferior with the superior leathers. They were continually at feud with the cobblers, and every endeavour was made to keep the two trades distinct. The Cordwainers were forbidden to mend shoes, and the cobblers to make them. Moreover, throughout the 13th and 14th and 15th centuries, there were fixed regulations not only that cordwainers should use new leather in making shoes, but that cobblers should be restricted wholly to the use of old leather in mending them. The latter were even punished for having new leather in their possession. In the reign of Edward III, the prices fixed for boots and shoes were a pair of shoes made of cordwain, sixpence, made of cow leather, fivepence, a pair of boots made of cordwain, three shillings and sixpence, made of cow leather, three shillings. This shows that boots were then very dear. In Edward IV's reign, the cordwainers stood up for the defence of their trade against the decree of the Pope. They were decidedly in the wrong, but one cannot but admire their pluckiness. The story is told in William Gregory's Chronicle of London, which is thus paraphrased by Dr. James Gardiner, the editor. Quote, the Pope issued a bull that no cordwainer should make any pikes, at the toes of the shoes, more than two inches long, or sell shoes on Sunday, or even fit a shoe upon a man's foot on Sunday, on pain of excommunication. Neither was the cordwainer to attend fairs on a Sunday under the same penalty. For not only were fairs held on that day, but the cordwainer's services, it must be supposed, were required at the fairs to adjust the dandy's chaussure, just as much as, in a later age, the barber's aid was necessary to dress his wig. The papal bull was approved by the king's council and confirmed by act of parliament, and proclamation was consequently made at Paul's cross that it should be put in execution. Yet, with all this weight of authority against a silly fashion, the dandy world had its own ideas upon the subject, and some men ventured to say they would wear long pikes in spite of the Pope, for the Pope's curse would not kill a fly. The cordwainers, too, had a vested interest in the extravagance, though some of their own body had been instrumental in getting the Pope's interference. They obtained privy seals and protections from the king to exempt them from the operation of the law, which soon became a dead letter and those who had applied to the Pope to restrain their practices were subjected to much trouble and persecution. End quote. The leather sellers had still more to do with leather than the cordwainers, and the same complaints were made against them for passing off inferior for superior leather. In the 14th and 15th centuries, several ordinances were issued regulating the trade of the leather sellers in the city of London, and for the prevention of deceit in the manufacture and sale of their wares. Purses or glovers were incorporated with the leather sellers in 1502, but in 1638 a new company of glovers was formed. The girdlers made belts or girdles for men and women. They were also called centurias and zonars. In 1217, 1 Henry III, Benedict Centura was one of the sheriffs of London. The company still exists, although it cannot be said that the calling survived the reign of Charles II.
The Goldsmiths' Company stands almost alone, on account of the great services to the state which it performs in connection with the important trade it represents, and also in connection with the trial of the gold and silver coins in the picks of His Majesty's Mint, a service which has been performed without intermission at any rate since the year 1281. This history also contains a strong argument in favour of the received opinion that the companies are the lineal descendants of the guilds, for the craft of goldsmiths performed by statute the same duties of assaying vessels of gold and silver that the present company does. The Act, 28 Edward I, recites that, quote, The wardens of the craft shall go from shop to shop among the goldsmiths to essay if their gold be of the same touch that is spoken of before. End quote. According to Stowe's Chronicle, a variance fell between the fellowships of goldsmiths and tailors in 1268, quote, causing great ruffling in the city and many men to be slain, for which riot thirteen of the captains were hanged. End quote. By the first charter, 1 Edward III, 1327, quote, the company were allowed to elect honest, lawful, and sufficient men, but skilled in the trade, to inquire of any matters of complaint, and who might, in consideration of the craft, reform what defects they should find therein, and punish offenders. It states that it had been theretofore ordained that all those who were of the goldsmith's trade should sit in their shops in the high street of Cheap, and that no silver or plate ought to be sold in the city of London except at the King's Exchange, or in the said street of Cheap amongst the goldsmiths, and that publicly, to the end that the persons of the said trade might inform themselves whether the sellers came lawfully by such vessels or not, whereas of late not only the merchants and strangers bought counterfeit sterling in the realm, and also many of the trade of goldsmiths kept shops in obscure turnings and by-lanes and streets, but did buy vessels of gold and silver secretly, without inquiring whether such vessels were stolen or lawfully come by, and melting it down, did make it into plate, and sell it to merchants travelling beyond seas, that it might be exported. And so they made false work of gold and silver, which they sold to those who had no skill in such things. These abuses and deceptions this charter provides against by ordaining that no gold or silver shall be manufactured to be sent abroad, but what shall be sold at the king's exchange, or openly amongst the goldsmiths, and that none, pretending to be goldsmiths, shall keep any shops but in cheap. End quote. The King's Exchange for the Receipt of Bullion was situated in the street leading from Cheapside to Knight Riders Street, known from the early part of the 17th century as Old Change. The London goldsmiths chiefly inhabited Cheapside, Old Change, Lombard Street, Foster Lane, St. Martin's Le Grand, Silver Street, Goldsmith Street, Wood Street, and the lanes about Goldsmith's Hall. That part of the south side of Cheapside from Bread Street to the Cross was called Goldsmith's Row. It was described in enthusiastic terms by Stowe as, quote, the most beautiful frame of fair houses and shops that be within the walls of London or elsewhere in England. The same was rebuilt by Thomas Wood, Goldsmith, one of the sheriffs of London in the year 1491. It containeth in number ten fair dwelling houses and fourteen shops, all in one frame, uniformly built four stories high, beautified towards the street with the goldsmith's arms and the likeness of woodmen, 
in memory of his name, riding on monstrous beasts, all which is cast in lead, richly painted over and gilt. These he gave to the goldsmiths with stocks of money to be lent to young men having those shops. This said front was again new painted and gilt over in the year 1594. Sir Richard Martin, being then mayor, and keeping his mayoralty in one of them. End quote. Sir Walter Prideaux, in his valuable Memorials of the Goldsmiths' Company, says that the native and the foreign goldsmiths appear to have been divided into classes, and to have enjoyed different privileges. First, there were the members of the company who were chiefly, but not exclusively, Englishmen. Their shops were subject to the control of the company. They had the advantages conferred by the company on its members, and they made certain payments for the support of the fellowship. The second division comprised the non-freemen, who were called allows, that is to say, allowed or licensed. There were allows English, allows Alicant, Alicant strangers, Dutchmen, men of the fraternity of St. Louis, etc. All these paid tribute to the company and were also subject to their control. All the livery companies possessed a class of young unmarried members called the Bachelors, and in the Goldsmiths' Company a special place was reserved for their lodging. This was known as Bachelors' Alley or Court, and was situated between Foster Lane and Gutter Lane. The lodgings were supplied at, quote, very small and easy rents, end quote, the greatest not to exceed eight shillings per annum. The tenants could continue as long as they were unmarried, but difficulties arose by reason of attempts at underletting without authority, and disorderly persons gave much trouble. In 1595, an order was promulgated, quote, that from henceforth no goldsmith shall have his dwelling in any of the tenements in Bachelor's Alley before he be admitted by the wardens for the time being, and that every one so admitted shall forthwith enter into a bond to deliver to the wardens, at his departure, the key of his tenement, and quietly to quit possession of the same. End quote. Sir Walter Prudeau states that at the early period of the First Charter, the goldsmiths acted as bankers and pawnbrokers. They received pledges not only of plate, but of other articles, such as cloth of gold and pieces of napery. St. Dunstan was the patron saint of the company, and feasts were held on his day, when also bells were set ringing. This saint's likeness in wood, gilt, formed the figurehead of the company's barge. There was also a chapel of St. Dunstan in St. Paul's Cathedral which was attached to the company. In the foregoing remarks there are some references to the livery companies, but these are introduced more particularly on account of the light thrown by them upon the trade of London. The work of the guilds was devoted to the trades which they represented, but in course of time many of the companies lost touch with the trades whose names they bore. This largely came about in a quite natural way, and the privilege of introduction to a company by patrimony caused the addition to the list of freemen of a large number of those who were engaged in other occupations. The relative position in precedence of the various companies have continually altered, and there is no information to show how the twelve chief companies have attained that commanding position. The feuds between the trades continued to comparatively late times. Pepys relates, in 1664, how there was a fray in Moorfields between the butchers and the weavers, 
between whom there had ever been a competition for mastery. At first the butchers knocked down all the weavers that had green or blue aprons, but at last the butchers were fain to pull off their sleeves that they might not be known, and were soundly beaten out of the field. Some note must be made here of the Jews and of the Italian moneylenders who for so long carried on the financial business of the country. One of the many hardships which the Jews suffered in this country was that wherever they might dwell they were compelled to bury their dead in London. This regulation was abolished by Henry II in 1177. The cruel calumny that the Jews at Lincoln crucified a Christian child brought them into great trouble, and in 1256 102 Jews were brought from Lincoln to Westminster charged with this crime. Eighteen of them were hanged, and the remainder lay in prison for a long time. Clipping of money became very general about 1278, and the Jews were supposed to be the chief culprits. Those who were suspected, with their Christian accomplices, were arrested, and at the end of the trial three hundred Jews were condemned to be hanged, as well as three Christians. Nearly all the goldsmiths and moneyers escaped the death penalty. In 1290 came the final blow when every Jew was expelled from England. It is difficult to understand Edward I's motive in banishing a class of men who were so useful to him. In Stowe's Chronicle, it is said that as their houses were sold, quote, the king made a mighty mass of money, end quote. But the action certainly added to his difficulties and drove him to resort to the Italian financiers, who were no more popular with the citizens than the Jews. The expulsion was ascribed to the instigation of the king's mother, Eleanor, widow of Henry III, but it certainly expressed the will of the nation. Stowe gives the number of Jews banished as 15,060, but this is probably an exaggeration. The number of London Jews is estimated at 2,000. The old Jewry was originally the ghetto of London, and the burial place of the Jews was on the site of Jewin Street. Mr. Joseph Jacobs, who compiled a valuable account of the old Jewry, is of the opinion that the Jews no longer lived in this place at the time of the expulsion. There was a Jewry within the liberty of the tower in the 13th century, and there is still a Jewry Street, Oldgate. The republics of Italy during the Middle Ages were the home of finance, and had advanced far before the other states of Europe in wealth and civilization. The necessities of the great countries of Europe, caused by the Crusades of the 11th and 12th centuries, were the opportunity of companies of moneylenders who acted as the Pope's collectors. Before the close of the reign of Henry III, the Italians had gained a firm footing in England as merchants and moneylenders. Citizens of Siena, Lucca, and Florence came here and fought with the Jews for the financial control of the country. Matthew Paris relates that Roger, Bishop of London, anathematized the Caorsi and banished them from his diocese in 1235 in spite of the support of quote, judges that were servants, familiaribus, to the Caorsi, whom they had elected for their will. End quote. In the early years of Edward I's reign, there were four companies of merchants of Siena acting under the title of Campsores Pape. In his ninth year, the keepers of the exchange delivered £10,000 to Lombard merchants, as they are styled in the record, in part payment of sums they had lent to the king. It is recorded that between the 23rd and 27th years of his reign, 
Edward I contracted a debt to the Friscobaldi alone of not less than £15,800. The king wanted much money for his wars and, as he could no longer look to the Jews, he was forced to apply for aid to the Italians. These loans grew so formidable that they caused considerable financial embarrassments in the reign of Edward II. There were a large number of companies such as the Ricciardi, the Bardi, the Peruzzi and the Spini, but the Friscobaldi, of which family there were several companies, occur most frequently in London history. Amerigo de Friscobaldi was constable of Bordeaux in the first year of Edward II's reign. Here are two entries from the city records. Quote, 14th of February, 1299 to 1300. Thursday after the Feast of St. Valentine came John de Pontes, goldsmith, and acknowledged himself bound to Faldo Yamiano, of the Society of Frescobaldi, in the sum of eight pounds and forty-five pence sterling, to be paid at Easter next. 2nd of February, 1305-6. Andrew Le Marechal acknowledged himself indebted to Bettinus Frescobaldi and his partners, merchants of the company of Frescobaldi, in the sum of one hundred and two pounds, thirteen shillings and fourpence. End quote. The loans in the reign of Edward III were very considerable, and the unpopularity of the Italians was great. In 1376, a petition was presented to the king by the mayor, aldermen, and commons of the city of London against usurious foreign moneylenders dwelling in London, asking that the Lombards might be forbidden from dwelling in the city, or acting as brokers and buying and selling by retail, which they alleged to be against their ancient franchises. The king answered the petition to the effect that if the citizens would put the city under good government for the future, no foreigner should be allowed to dwell, act as broker, or sell by retail in London or the suburbs, save and except the merchants of the Hans towns. On the whole, we must extend our sympathy to the Italians, for the king was not very prompt in paying his debts, and he considered it immoral to have promised any interest. The effect was that he ruined many of these unfortunate foreigners. The name of Lombard Street occurs in the city books in 1382, and was in common use at the beginning of the 14th century. It is a remarkable fact that the locality in which the Italian financiers first settled in London should obtain a name which has continued to the present day as a synonym of finance, and was used by the late Mr. Badgett as the title of his great work. Matthew Paris tells us that the houses which the Italian moneylenders built for themselves were so costly that, although at one period the Italians were anxious to leave the kingdom to escape the persecutions they suffered from, they were constrained to remain by the loss they feared to incur by deserting their houses. In 1456, a serious attack was made upon the houses of the Lombards by the Mercers and other crafts, led by William Cantelow, Alderman and Mercer, who was summoned before the king's council and imprisoned. We learn also from the Paston letters that two of the men who joined in the attack were hanged. In Gregory's Chronicle, it is said that the Lombards were compelled to quit London and take up their residence in Southampton and Winchester. Dr. James Gardiner writes of this outbreak, quote, The withdrawal of the Lombard merchants in all probability produced a sensible effect upon the commerce of the city for they made a by-law among themselves that no individual merchant of northern Italy should henceforth go to London and trade there. End quote. This ordinance, the Signory of Venice ratified by a decree of the Senate, and prohibited, under a heavy fine, 
all Venetian vessels from visiting the port of London. In spite of all this turmoil, affairs settled down again, and the foreigners appeared to have returned to their London houses. In connection with the introduction of Italian bankers into London, the popular derivation of bankrupt from a broken bench is naturally called to mind, and I have tried to find some allusion in the city records to a broken bench in Lombard Street, but without success. In Florio's A New World of Words, or Dictionary in Italian and English, 1598, we find the following entries. Quote, Banca, a bench or a form. Bancarotta, a bankrupt. End quote. In Torriano's edition of Florio, 1650, we come upon these amplified entries. Quote, Bancarotta, a bankrupt merchant, one that hath broken his credit. Banca fallito, a bank broken, a merchant's credit cracked. This is the explanation that commends itself to Dr. Murray, New English Dictionary, who writes that he cannot trace the reference to a broken bench earlier than that of Dr. Johnson, who introduced the suggestion with the formula, quote, it is said, end quote. There is, however, an early note bearing on this derivation in Sir John Skeen's remarkable little book, De Verborum Significatione, 1641, where we read, under the words, Dior, Divor, this explanation, quote, In Latin, sedere bonis, wilk is most commonly used amongst merchants to make bankrupt, bankrupt, or bankrompe, because the door thereof, as it were, breaketh his bank, stall, or seat, where he used his traffic of before, End quote. No earlier date for the use of the word than the reign of Henry VIII has been found by Professor Skeet or Dr. Murray, but surely an earlier reference must be lurking somewhere. In the first folio of Shakespeare, the word is printed bankeraute, pronounced as four syllables, but this was altered in later editions to bankrupt. There can be no doubt that the word is directly derived from bankerotta, and that the form bankrupt is an afterthought of the learned to connect it with the Latin language. The point that has to be accounted for is the strange appropriation of an expression meaning broken bench or broken bank to the individual whose credit is broken. This one would naturally expect to be a secondary meaning. In concluding this chapter, it is necessary to make an allusion to the statute merchant, 11 Edward I, for the recovery of debts. The first two letterbooks of the City of London are chiefly concerned with recognizances of debts, and they are of great value as illustrating the commercial intercourse of the citizens of London in the 13th and 14th centuries with Gascony and Spain, more especially in connection with wine and leather. By the Statute of Acton Burnell, 11 Edward I, it was enacted that recognizances of debts should be taken before the mayor and a clerk appointed by the king. Nevertheless, within a very short while after the passing of this statute, and notwithstanding its express provision to the contrary, we find the mayor, sheriffs and aldermen declaring that such recognizances should be made before the city chamberlain, who might, if he liked, receive, as he frequently did, the recognizances at his own house instead of at the Guildhall. It was ordered that the recognizances should bear, quote, the debtor's seal and also the king's seal, End quote, to be provided for the purpose. 
this latter seal appears to be no longer in existence. From impressions of it preserved at King's College, Cambridge and elsewhere, it is found to have been circular and nearly three-quarters of an inch in diameter, with the King's bust between two castles with a line of England in base. The following entry from letterbook A forms an interesting illustration of the contents of these books. Quote, Lawrence de Guizos acknowledged before Henry La Galais, the mayor, that he owed Sir Philip Le Taylor a cask of wine to be delivered on a certain love day, diem amoris, because the said Lawrence killed a dog belonging to him. End, quote. End of chapter 10. End of section 21. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.